You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Here's Nate. Well, because it houses the beginning of the spoken law of God for the people of Israel, namely the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20 is one of the more glorious chapters in the book of Exodus, in the Old Testament, and really in all of God's Word. Just a powerful, wonderful section of Scripture. And it begins this way in verse 1. It says, And God spoke all these words. I think sometimes we just have to stop and remember that this is the Word of the Lord, that God from heaven has spoken into the world and culture and setting that human beings occupy. And here is God speaking to his people, speaking to his children. And God spoke all these words. How wonderful that God speaks and that God has given to us these 66 books of his word, the Bible, this compilation, this library of books by which we can learn of him, know of him, discover him, and figure out his desire and plan and will for our lives, how he would have us to live. He says in verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He recalls for them the great victory that he had won for them. This is very Paul the Apostle-ish. As you study his epistles and the New Testament, you discover that quite often his practice was to speak of Jesus first, to speak of doctrine first, to speak of what Jesus Christ has done for us first, whether it's in the book of Ephesians, as you study Ephesians there, you see that the church is the body of Christ. And Ephesians 1 through 3 is dedicated to the doctrine of just the redemption of what Jesus has done for us in making us his body. And after explaining that to us, describing it for us, he then in chapter 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians tells us how we then should live, a response to the glorious truth of what Christ has done for us. Same in Colossians. Christ is the head of the church in the book of Colossians. And we read of his glory and his majesty and preeminence in Colossians 1 and 2. And then in chapter 3 and 4, we see the application of that great truth that he is the head of the church as we think of what it means to be connected to the head, we then respond in a certain way with our families and our marriages and our peace and love and the putting off of sin and the putting on of righteousness. There is a response to the great thing that God has done for us. And the same thing is found right here in Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You have to know first of what God has done. He reminds them of the victory that he had won for them. And then he begins to give them these ten commandments. Starting out in verse 3, You shall have no 
other gods before me. Now, these Ten Commandments, before we look at this first commandment, the first four of them are Godward. The last six are manward. And even though the Christian is not under the law, the truth is that every one of these commandments, outside of the commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy, is repeated in the New Testament era. And even in the New Testament era, the church did worship the Lord, not on Saturday, but on Sunday, typically. And Jesus Christ, according to the New Testament, is our Sabbath rest. We have a perpetual Sabbath rest in Jesus Christ. So every one of these commandments is repeated for us in the church New Testament era. And just by way of reminder, the law, as I mentioned in chapter 18 and 19, was not given so that the Israelites, by keeping it, could attain some level of righteousness. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. It's through the law, Paul says, that the knowledge of sin comes. So this law is the way for these people to live. These are the requirements of the nation, but they would not be justified by keeping this law. They'd be protected. They'd be preserved. They'd be dwelling and living in the place of God's radical and wonderful blessing upon their lives. But they were already covered by the blood, God's covenantal people. So just a beautiful thing here as God gives the law to the people of Israel. A righteous standing before God. Justification has always been only by faith in God. Abraham believed the Lord and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15 verse 6 says and Paul in Romans chapter 4 goes back to that very same verse to point out that Abraham believed God and God accounted righteousness or imputed righteousness to him. We are not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, Galatians 2, verse 16. So the law here is going to show the people of Israel how to live. And from these Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, we have so much to learn as Christians. Now, in the giving of the law, you'll have, as I've mentioned previously, three distinct sections of the law. You'll have the Ten Commandments. You'll have the civil and religious ordinances, and you'll have the ceremonial regulations having to do with the temple and the priesthood and all of that. And so the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. This is a declaration, first of all, that there is only one God. And this isn't, of course, God being arrogant. You know, only God can say, you shall worship no one else besides me and not be arrogant in saying it. This is truthful. This is just the way that it is. In one sense, you could say that we have been created to worship the Lord. We have been created to worship God. But not in a sense where there's a God who wanted worship, so he decided to create human beings in order to receive worship from them. No, that's not the way it is. He created us to pour out his blessing upon us. But here's what happens. 
because he is God, because he is the creator God, because there is no one else like him, the natural and good and right and really only truthful response to his reality and our reality is for us to worship. It's not that he even has to say, I've made you to worship me. I've programmed you and created you to worship me. It's just, that's the way it is. When you have a creator and a creation, the creation must and should worship the creator. And this, of course, leads to our great blessing. When we are in a place of worshiping the Lord, prioritizing our walk and relationship with him, loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, as Jesus said in Matthew 22, as an assessment or an evaluation of the whole of the law, when we live in that way, well, it leads not to the great blessing of God. He is eternally blessed with us or without us. It leads to our great blessing. We are fulfilled. We are satisfied. I would encourage you to cultivate the roots of your personal devotion to God. No other gods before me. The worship of the Lord. He goes on then and gives the next commandment. He says, verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my Commandments. So the second command here is you shall not make for yourself a carved image. This has to do with the worship of the nation, the worship of God's people, not giving themselves to basically idolatry. Unfortunately, in Israel, they were often guilty of breaking this commandment. And as they worshiped idols, it always led to their personal slavery to whatever idol and whatever nation was connected to that idol. And so you shall not make for yourself a carved image for the purpose of worship, I should add. It's not as if God is saying, hey, listen, you know, if there's ever an artist that rises up within your midst who wants to make a carved image, you must forbid them. It's the making of a carved image for the purpose of worship. They could make frames and furniture and decorations. My goodness, they used carved things and artistry inside of the tabernacle itself. It's the carving for the purpose of worship that is prohibited by the Lord. And so he just tells them like it is, do not make idols for yourself to worship, which seems like the most ridiculous thing in the world, that you would actually fashion something with your hands and then turn to that thing that you have created with your hands and begin to worship it. But the church, just like Israel, is so often guilty of the same crime. John in 1 John chapter 5, closed out his first epistle by saying, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 
it is a problem. We might not always make physical idols for ourselves out of wood or out of stone or out of some metal, but we do have idols. Sometimes those idols are physical in nature. Greed overwhelms our hearts. Covetousness overwhelms our hearts. And we worship possessions and things and belongings. Perhaps an idol is a bank account or a hobby or an interest. But you know, we can make idols of almost anything. We make idols of success. We make idols of relationships. We make idols of husbands and wives. We make idols of boyfriends and girlfriends. We make idols of children, our own children at times. We make idols of parents and pastors and spiritual leaders. We make idols of academia. We can make idols of anything. And the Lord says to us, don't worship at the feet of idols. Don't give yourself to idolatry. The thing about worshiping any other thing besides God is that any other thing that you worship will absolutely crush you. You will become disappointed. You will become disillusioned. You will become angry and upset as a result of that worship. Don't put your hopes, your dreams, your worship into other things. Love them in some ways. If it's a child, love your child. If it's a spouse, love your spouse. But keep them in their proper place and perspective. They are not worthy of your worship. And so they weren't to make any likeness of anything. You know, sun, moon, stars, things on the earth, things in heaven, for the purpose of worship. And God gave the reason there in verse 5. He said, because I'm a jealous God. I'm zealous for you. I'm zealous for my name and my reputation. And when you do this, I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. It's interesting that children will often repeat the folly of their father. And it's so difficult for that folly to be broken. Sometimes taking three or four generations. But those who love the Lord, he says, verse 6, I will show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The next command he says, you shall not take, verse 7, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, unfortunately, we have so often minimized this commandment and have reduced it to something absolutely absurd or silly. In the culture I live in, people love to use the name Jesus Christ as a curse word. And when they're angry, when they stub their toe, when they drop a hammer on their thumb or whatever, they say the name of Jesus and they're not saying it with honor, but with great disrespect. And we, if we say that that's what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain, we have set the bar way too low. It might mean that, but it means much more than that. Here you have the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is his reputation. It's what he stands for. It's his character. It's his nature. So in one sense, what this is, is a promoting a low view of God. This is a lack of the reverence of God. Christians can be guilty of this when we go a little overboard in complaining about God, in 
questioning his nature, questioning his judgments. And certainly the Lord is gracious, the Lord is kind. We've already seen that here in Exodus, that he's very long-suffering towards his people. But we should not take the name of the Lord in vain. We should revere him and respect him. There's this almost hypocrisy that God is calling out. You can't make these oaths in my name only to break them. It's a hypocritical action. You must revere my name. Then he goes on, verse 8, and says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, like I said earlier, this is the one commandment that is not repeated in the New Testament. He says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. No one works on that seventh day. For in the six days... The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested, proverbially, on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So, because God ceased from his work on the seventh day, every single week, the Israelites were to, on Saturday, they would have a day of rest. How wonderful, just a day to honor the Lord, to worship the Lord, to be with family. It wasn't a day of extreme sloth. It was a day of restoration and rejuvenation and worship and praise. It was something Jesus said that was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, which the religious leaders had done. They'd made the Sabbath into a real curse of a day. But God created it in order to bless the people. Now, in our present church age, we See, in the New Testament, that they gathered together on the first day of the week. Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, which was Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. It became the new day to honor the Lord because it was the day that he had risen from the grave. And so typically the church will worship on Sunday. And the New Testament is clear. We don't even have to esteem one day above another. Every day can belong to the Lord. But just because we worship on Sunday doesn't mean that that is somehow our new Sabbath. No, the reality is our new Sabbath is Jesus Christ. He is our Sabbath rest. And so all of our time is devoted to him. All of our breaths are devoted to him. He has purchased us. He has redeemed us. We belong to him, and he belongs to us. He is our Sabbath. Now, verse 12, he goes on and says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is the first commandment that has to do with our relationship with others, our relationship with mankind. Paul points out, rightly, in Ephesians that this is the first commandment with a promise attached to it. The promise that your days will be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And so what is this command that has a promise of prosperity and length? It's honor your father and your mother. The respect of authority. The honoring of parents. According to the Old Testament, this would involve prizing them or valuing them highly, number one. It would also involve 
caring for them and showing affection for them. You know, taking care of their needs, number two. And number three, it would mean showing respect or fear or reverence towards them. And so, you know, parents have an incredible role in our lives. Parents are not always perfect. And sometimes we have to honor the position and not the person. Sometimes we have to honor the concept of a father and a mother, the concept of parenthood, because our parents are so negligent or absent. Sometimes our parents sin against us gravely and greatly and have not honored their children, sometimes even going so far as to abuse or harm their children. And in that instance and in those cases, it's so hard to honor them because there is nothing to honor them for. But still, within our hearts, there can be an honor for the position of a father and mother in and of itself. Now, of course, this is not to mean that a parent replaces somehow the word of God. The word of a parent is no substitute to the word of God. God's word is the authority over even the children inside of a parent's home. Verse 13, the next commandment is, you shall not murder. This speaks of a respect for life. This respect for life is rooted in the fact that God made man in his image. Genesis 9 verse 6 tells us that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And so here you have not a prohibition against the state, taking a life or war taking a life but you have the prohibition of man taking matters into his own hands and murdering another human being we have no right to do so in the nation i live in the united states abortion has taken the lives of upwards of 50 million children it's an abhorrent thing it is a blemish upon us and i believe that we are reaping what we have sown. There should be 50 million plus people on this planet who are not here in this nation as a result of murder, a grave crime. But that murder, that thing that God has commanded us not to do, can also be as subtle as anger within our hearts. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It's not that anger and murder are the same or equivalent in the sense of the damage that they do here on earth. But in the sight of God, even anger demonstrates what is wrong inside of us and our need for Jesus to redeem us and to help us internally. So respect for human life. Verse 14, he says, you shall not commit adultery. This law, of course, would protect the family. This is a plague in our culture. Marital unfaithfulness, to me, has broken the back of this society that we live in. And 
This commandment here is protecting the sanctity of the home. Have sexual purity maritally. Don't go outside of the bounds of your marriage. Don't quote to me Matthew 7 verse 1, Judge not lest ye be judged. You're not reading that in context. You are to be judged if you are an adulterer. Paul tells the early church, the Corinthians, he says, listen, I've told you not concerning people outside of the church, but people inside of the church who are sexually immoral and adulterers and drunken and all of that don't have anything to do with these people. They are to be judged, Paul would tell us. And here the Lord says, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, he says, verse 15. This is a respect of property. This means, by the way, that personal private ownership is acceptable in God's sight. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. How easy it is to tarnish someone's reputation. You might be respecting their life, but you might not be respecting their person. It's so easy to tarnish someone's reputation, but very, very difficult to repair it. Verse 17, he says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This speaks of the problem inside of the human heart. I mean, really, covetousness is all around us. Try to watch a commercial without seeing the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life being appealed to by that advertiser. No, contentment is the word of the day for God's people. Not a covetousness which so corrupts the human heart, but a contentment. Paul said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me in Philippians 4 verse 13. And sometimes we quote that haphazardly, but forgetting that Paul said it in the context of saying, I know how to be abounding financially and I know how to be abased. I know how to be wealthy and I know how to be poor. I know how to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be a content man. Now this command was actually the command that nailed Paul the Apostle. It was this command, contentment, that caused him to realize that the law was more than just an external thing that he could keep, but an internal thing that identified a problem inside of his heart, as he detailed in Romans 7. Now, closing out the chapter, after these Ten Commandments were given, it says that when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They wanted that intermediary. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you. But the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. You avoid sin by having a fear of God. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me. So he begins now to talk about the ceremonial law, the worship. You will not make an altar of gold and all of that, but an altar of earth you shall make for me. 
and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. You're not going to chisel it and carve and all of that. If you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. The false gods of the time were worshipped with these ornate altars that men had built with stones and, and stairs and all of that. But God says, you make it out of the earth. You don't carve it. You don't even put stones up to it, lest your nakedness be exposed. You just approach me humbly. You can't make a thing to come to me. You can come to me by what I have already made for you. So the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the law. What a beautiful section of scripture we are jumping into. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.